we need to be really make sure that we use notifications when they're absolutely necessary because people don't just have one one app. They don't just have our app. They have 9 million apps and they get 87 notifications every day. And I think a lot of what we're good at as designers is to sometimes zoom out of the the specific little detail we're discussing and look at like, okay, what are the, what's the wider context? Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pongpat. So welcome to the What is UX podcast. And on this episode, I'm excited to interview Martin Winter of the Volkswagen Group of America Innovation and Engineering Center, California. Wow, that is a mouthful. Uh, welcome, Morton. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peg. Yes, we have quite the quite the company name. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to read a quote from you, and this is what attracted me to want to talk to you. So Morton is, when it comes to design, Morton is concerned with the ethics of how technology influences our everyday lives. He's designing for the long-term consequences of design rather than the short-term pleasure. Uh, design, especially in the R&D context, shouldn't just be about giving what people think they want but also exploring how to ensure a humane and sustainable, fulfilling future. Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I know. I think that that in many ways is a very precise way of articulating, but I, I am just really interested in, in not just building and designing products, but also really thinking about, why these products exist? What's the purpose of them? What are the some of the implications of introducing this product to to the to the world, so to say? And and really, in that way, the ethics of it. I am especially now doing more sort of R and D stuff. I do feel like a responsibility as a designer to think about well, if we're adding all of these, let's say AI interaction and AI based interactions to the world and suggestions and proactivity ideas. How does that all scale? How does it all add up? What's it going to be like to live in a world as a human if technology does that? And so in that way, that's something that I'm really interested in. How do we how do we develop things? How do we add new technology? How do we utilize technology? But how do we make sure that we do it in a way where we build a future that we want to live in as well and that we're excited for our children to be living <laughs> Maybe in this talk, you can go over maybe some of the principles or the framework you go about thinking in terms of those implications. For myself, you know, as a design agency that serves businesses, I can tell you that I think thinking of the consequences doesn't come up very much. You know, I ask questions like, what is the pain point you're trying to solve? What is the business outcome you're trying to achieve? And we design for that you know, to solve a problem, but we don't necessarily think about the, the consequences. I think where ethics comes in for us, for me as a person and for us as a company is, do we think that that company or their mission or the product we're producing is aligned with some of our values? There have come times when certain clients or prospects come and they want to build a certain thing. And if we don't, align with that in terms of, oh, we think that is slightly morally gray or more morally wrong, we may decline them. 
but you know, we don't, that's kind of the extent of where we think it's like, we, we either draw the line of taking them or, or not, but we seldom think about kind of the, the long-term sustainable implications of things we design. So I would love to hear how, what are some of the things that if you want to become a more sustainably designed company, what, what do you think about? Yeah, I, I think in many ways, so right now I'm in a I'm in a role where I have the liberty to think about these things very, very consciously and, and where it is part of the job is to sort of imagine the future. Um, obviously, that's not what all designers get to do. It's not what I've always gotten to do. I've done a lot of more uh, sort of traditional digital work where it's like, let's build this app. But I still think there are things to think about even when we do more near-term related stuff. So one element when we're building apps is to think a lot about how do we use notifications? And as designers, maybe being the voice for, we need to be really make sure that we use notifications when they're absolutely necessary because people don't just have one one app they don't just have our app they have nine million apps and they get 87 notifications every day and i think a lot of what we're good at as designers is to sometimes zoom out of the the specific little detail we're discussing and look at like okay what are the what's the wider context we talk about that as holistic experience we talk about it in many ways but i think that's what we're good at taking a puzzle piece and understanding how this puzzle piece fits in to like the wider wider landscape of it and i and and so i think that's something that we can do even even in more sort of near term is thinking about how does this design decision or this decision we're making as a business how does it fit in in general with people's lives. It could also be really always thinking about, well, yes, this works when everything aligns and everything works well, but how does it work if we get it wrong? So a lot of what I've been working on in the most recent years has been around predicting or suggesting what people might be doing next. So this idea of using people's data and from that have some ideas of what's probably going to happen, what's probably something that you'd want right now. And in that exercise, always being really careful about thinking about what if we get it wrong? How annoying is it, is it going to be if we get it wrong? Because that's, that's going to be like the lived experience of that product is, is sort of how that's going to fit into our lives, how that's going to be add an extra notification among those other 10,000 notifications I get all the time. Yeah. So I do think there are ways we can think about these things even for more near-term type yeah. products. And I think that's a great, you know, you preface it that this is something that you have to do as your job in, in kind of the position that you're in working in innovation at Volkswagen. And you're right, not, not every company or not every job design role lets you think about this, this position. I can relate in the sense that you mentioned that in, in the innovation role, this is why I liked my time at Accenture Technology, their innovation lab was uh, similar to you. The mandate was to try to look five to 10 years out of what the future could be like. And I got to work on exploratory projects. This was in the early 2000s. So it was really cool. Some of these were not my projects. I didn't get to work on it, but we, we've explored the use of GPUs for, for more than just graphics processing. I think they were, and at first I, I didn't see the value. I was like, why, why would you want to 
change all these scientific formulas into and load them as textures and compute a bunch of stuff. And like, that seems like a really hard way to do math here and <laughs> overly complicated. But now you can see GPUs being used in, in everything. Uh, and, and there was like, likewise, there was, you know, early computer vision stuff that was really cutting edge work. I, I, I worked on a project sort of like similar to Google Glass where none of this hardware existed. So basically I mounted what was a relatively large camera next to your glasses. It, it, it you know, worked as the camera, but it was, it was pretty big. It was size, size of like a big thick marker and it was tethered to a big PC to do the image processing. But the story, the story was, well, 10 years from now, all that will be miniaturized into a mobile phone. Like you'll be able to just do this. And, and, and some of this is, has come true. We, we just didn't realize or we were able to imagine how it would actually happen, but, but it did. And there was some exploratory work for business, for example, in the context of in a meeting, uh, you could arm yourself with talking points or who, who this person was so that you, you could handle negotiations better or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's really fun work working in the innovation group. Can you, yes. yeah. Is there, without breaking any NDAs, can you speak generally of some of the work that you do? Yeah. So obviously the, the Volkswagen group is a pretty big company. We have a lot of brands ranging from Volkswagen to Audi, Porsche, Lamborghini, a lot of brands within sort of mobility and automotive. And all of these brands have their individual products. And then some things happen at like a group wide level and where we have initiatives uh, where all these companies come together and work on stuff together. One of those topics is innovation and R&D where we have what's called group innovation. Uh, and we have our main, main group innovation office is in Germany in Wolfsburg. But then we have one here in Belmont in California, and then one as well in Beijing, China, and then some smaller satellites around. So it is sort of, we are like a little global company within the company. Uh, and our role is really to, to look at new concepts, new emerging technologies, try to think of smarter ways to solve existing problems, try to think about what will future problems be once we're all uh, driving around fully autonomously, what will that world be like, what would be services that we could need. And so in that way, it's a pretty broad uh, role that we have. We get to think a lot about things. There are some very technical things around improving battery technologies because we're all about electrification now. How do we make that better? How do we make it so that you don't have to wait two hours to fully charge your car? So of course, there are a lot of very technical uh, topics that are being explored, but then we do have also uh, a lot of work within design, both traditional automotive design, but then also more uh, sort of traditionally digital design, and then also trying to figure out how design, what design looks in between digital and uh, traditional interior design. And then some of the projects that I've worked on without going into too much detail, I've done a lot of work within voice interactions, uh, both solving for like voice today, but also thinking about how could voice play a role in uh, completely self-driving robo-taxis in cities in the future. So done a lot of work around what, what sort of voice can do and how not just voice, but also really just 
intelligence and that type of idea. Then I've done work within um, mental well-being. We spend a lot of time in our cars, at least pre-pandemic, we spend a lot of times in our cars just commuting to and from work and just being curious. And can we spend that time on just feeling better about ourselves are there ways where we could bring well-being practices into the vehicle but do it in a safe way and so I've done a lot of work on that and that's something that I've been really it's a, it's a topic that I'm really excited about and then now doing a lot of work on just holistically thinking about how do we put technology into our vehicles in a way that's also aesthetically appealing in terms of a type of future that we want to live in. So yeah, we do all sorts of projects, uh, but that's some of what I've, I've been working on mostly uh, in my time there. Yeah. Uh, the voice stuff is very interesting and uh, as well as kind of like the mental well-being while driving, because yeah, driving a car, especially in traffic, I lived in the Bay Area and I, I know the Bay Area traffic, it can be quite stressful. And uh, yeah, I'm curious to hear maybe what some of your thoughts and ideas were around that. I, I can see a future where maybe when you don't, their cars are fully autonomous and you don't have to drive, you know, mental well-being could be, yeah, you could meditate <laughs> mm-hmm. while, you know, you yeah. could control the the windows and, 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 and the lighting in such a way that you can create a calm environment if you were no longer assuming it's a safe autonomous driven vehicle that you can do some of these things. Yeah. That's some of what we've thought about is definitely that idea of what do we do once we don't no longer have to drive our vehicle. And I think a lot of the traditional concepts we've seen in the automotive industry has been around uh, being productive. So getting to work and starting work from your vehicle, taking meetings and, and that whole idea. But we've been interested in then also what other types of things could you be doing and meditating could be one. We've also then said, why do we have to wait? Are there ways where we can bring some of this into today? And unfortunately, I can't explain all of what we've been doing, but I think what I can say is this idea of how can we, how can we make you be more mindful in the act of driving? Uh, so sometimes what happens, I don't know if you've, you've tried this pack, but sometimes when we drive, maybe we've had a rough day at work, we've had discussions that just keeps going in our brain. Sure. Uh, it just, it sort of keeps turning. Personally, I can come home. It can be hard to be that dad that I want to be because I keep thinking about it. So we've been really interested in seeing, is there a way where we can help people not think about that, but just be really just focused on driving and in that way, bring the idea of mindfulness into the act of driving so that you're just fully focused on driving driving, you're fully just in the moment, you don't necessarily respond or react emotionally to it, and you just accept, which is also a good thing for drivers, we don't need people to be super emotional while driving. And so I think those are some of the ideas that we've had, and then that we've worked into like actually building concepts around. The the idea of focus is so important. And uh, part of how I cope with, you know, take clearing the air or clearing my brain off of work is to try to exercise and exercise has always been uh, a great way for me to yeah in the process of doing the exercise I have to completely focus because otherwise it's dangerous so it's uh, it's really a great way to kind of forget about work for a little bit in, in, in that hour and then plus the endorphins the the voice stuff is very interesting you you even given a guest lecture at UC Berkeley on, on full and prototyping for voice. So maybe you can share some of the insights that you share in that guest lecture for those of us who've had very little experience 
you know, when, when people think UX design or product design, I think maybe 99% of the time it's, it's either web or mobile. So for those of us who maybe are not familiar with voice design, what are some of the tips or insights or best practices? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I think voice is a really interesting area and it also for design, it's, it's a, it's a really fun topic to dive into. I think what I always want to start out with when saying voice is to remind everyone that it's, this is just another way to interact with our technologies. So all those usability heuristics that we have, all those ideas we have about what it means to make things easy that you always want to have, like make clear to the user what the status of the system is, make clear to the user what options they have, not put too many options in their face. Uh, Those still apply. It's all the same basic principles that we live by as UX designers. They're still valid. Of course, they, they can look a little different or sound a little different with voice design, but I think it is really important to remember that voice is just another interaction modality. But what I think is a lot of fun with voice is, I think one of the things that we've seen in the UX industry or in the tech industry over the last 10, 15 years is to sort of making products more human. Mm-hmm. Like back in the 80s and 90s, it was a lot of just making sure that they worked and were functional. But now it's like, is it easy to use? Is it simple to use? And a lot of that work that we use as designers is to sort of translate the technical stuff into something that people understand. And we now have disciplines like UX writing where people come in and actually help craft the words that we use in interfaces. And I think that's what's exciting for me about voices is that's the same idea of really trying to make it as easy, as natural as possible to now you don't even have to understand an interface. You can just use an instrument you're very comfortable in your voice and in speaking. And and I think that's that's exciting for for design to sort of explore that and to really use that that everyday conversational way of engaging with the world that we're very used to and start interacting with technology that way. I am constantly amazed by how different people use technology. Like I, I use my phone a certain way. I use apps a certain way. And then sometimes, you know, I'm exposed to folks who like use Siri, for example, quite a lot on their phone where they're always asking Siri for, versus for me, it's like, it's not as, to me, I find it's more frustrating to f- ask Siri in the right way to get what I want versus just mm-hmm. typing it into search, whereas some people find it, it's easier for them to just ask the question in their human natural way. Most of the time, Siri doesn't know the answer and she'll say, here's what I found on the web, which is yes. basically a, a shortcut to doing the Google search themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to see how, how people how different people approach technology and, and certainly voice resonates with, with a certain demographic, certain segment of people, yeah, users. Yeah. And I, I think just to add to that, I, I completely agree. I think a lot of it is to when we do work with voice, or this is one of the things that I've tried to work a lot with in the automotive industry is again, to remember that voice is just one way of interacting and it's not just the only one. Even when you do voice interactions, it can be really helpful to have supporting visuals. It's much easier to show a place on a map visually than for a voice to try to explain you where that is. So it's really a lot about understanding the strengths and weaknesses 
of when is it that we use one modality over another and how do we combine things so that by, for the user, it's simple. Or even just like a list, it's easier to see a list of 10 items and have a voice try to read that list out to you. That's so cumbersome and it's hard cognitively for the user to keep that all in their heads. So really thinking about how do we combine it. And and then I think a lot of voice stuff, it's it's not just about certain type of users, but also different situations that we're in as people. So when I'm in my kitchen and I have grease, greasy fingers from doing food, it's nice to have Alexa to ask her something. But other times I don't want to, I'm not, I'm, I'm in that way. I agree with you. I don't use voice for a lot of things, but there are certain things where it's sort of situationally uh, of value to me to do. So I think that's a component we have to think about when we design for voice is also not just like our traditional personas, uh, right. but also these different situations that they're in and how that have different constraints. So when you're driving, Voice makes it nice for certain things. Right. It makes a lot of sense versus, especially with touch screens where you have to maybe avert your gaze because it's not a tactile button you can feel anymore with, with newer cars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's also interesting that, for example, you know, I, I observe children, uh, my, my niece and nephew are a great example of me kind of doing studying, right? You have, you have like tablets and they're used to touching that in, in response to voice, you know, smart TVs. They're not all created equal. So sometimes, you know, that like smart TVs, they all have YouTube, but some smart TVs have have the Google voice so that you can just talk and, and navigate that way. And sometimes they use that. And then some of the older smart TVs, they don't have voice. So then they're perplexed by, oh, well, why doesn't it work this way? Or yeah. my, my nephew in his younger days, he, he just didn't understand why he couldn't navigate the TV by touching it because it works on the phone. It works on the tablet. And then there's this big thing where it's got the same graphics, right? Like the YouTube thumbnail and everything, but somehow he can't just tap tap that, right? With Yeah, definitely. My youngest daughter, she does the same, like touches my uh, MacBook uh, screen expecting it to be touched because that's what she used to. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So we talked about how there was a comment about how it took you years to realize that design was your path and, and that before you got comfortable with the label of designer. And uh, so talk to me about that and sort of the feeling of imposter syndrome. Yeah, I think growing up, I never thought design was like a career path that was I never something that I even consider even through high school, even though I had started dabbled with web design as a hobby, playing around with Microsoft front page and paint job pro. And it was, it was always just something that I considered a hobby. And then my career would be something like become a doctor or an engineer or something. And after high school, I, I enjoyed physics and math in high school. So I started studying nanotechnology. And after a few years of my bachelor's I realized that this is this is not for me at all. Um, <laughs> and then had a few years where I just worked in like retail stores, selling toys. And then all of a sudden these interaction design programs had started popping up. Um, and then that all of a sudden was this epiphany for me, almost like, wow, design can be more than a hobby. I don't know. I, I don't know why I hadn't thought of that earlier. I mean, it's not like a Denmark where I grew up is a very sort of design forward country. We have a rich design history, but I think design in Denmark is, at least in my mind, growing up, it was very 
connected to this idea of the creative genius, someone who's really comfortable drawing. And that's never been me. I've never been, I don't draw very well. It's something I wish that I did. So I think some of my not feeling super comfortable in putting on that designer label was this idea of not living up to what I thought a designer was supposed to be or what they were supposed to be looking like or the skills that they had. And even during my degree then in interaction design, I never felt super comfortable in, in saying I'm an interaction designer. I was more like, I, I work with interaction design. It's, it was hard to put on that role in some ways. It's something that I'm comfortable with today, but it took me a while to also, because I think as a designer, I, I lean a little towards the more sort of analytical strategic type of reasoning more so than just the, the, gut feeling or the, uh, or the intuition, that's definitely part of it. But I am a little more, I feel more confident in my analytical abilities probably. So I think that's part of why it's taken me a while to feel super comfortable in, um, in being a designer. <laughs> well, I can certainly relate to that because I, I never studied design, don't have a design degree, but through my years of being a software developer in the early days, you know, design was somewhat needed and my whatever little skills of Photoshop I had, people always turned to me to like, hey, Peck, you know, can you work on some of this front end or design the, what it looks like because you have some Photoshop skills and that's how my, my design sort of started. And then especially when Apple started coming up with better software and kind of that surge of consumer internet software products came. I, I became very enamored of that and uh, started self-teaching a lot more, but I, I lacking the design degree gave me imposter syndrome, like, like yeah. you know, to use your words and uh, lack of confidence. But I think over time, because I was always at the leading edge when like, Hey, when mobile, like the iPhone came out, I just started exploring designing for the iPhone. I was like, well, nobody else is doing it and I'm doing it. I guess, I guess that makes me <laughs> a little bit of an expert because I was always like when the iPad came out, I started exploring designing for iPad. And, and because of that, I had some early insights into like, well, what are the constraints? Well, I got well, one, I got the iPad and then I started designing for it. So I started to understand the insights better of, of what it means to design for tablet and its usability. So over time, I, I, Kind of like, okay, I, I guess I'm a designer. Yeah. 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 So grew into it. <laughs> yeah. And I think definitely I feel way more comfortable in it today, but I think imposter syndrome is something that will probably never leave me. I think for me, it's more about getting better at dealing with it, coming back to this idea of working with the future, talking about meaningful technology. I have a lot of self-doubt on like, well, what do I know? I have some initial responses sometimes to technology where it's like, I don't, I don't want to live with that, but why do I know better? Or uh, So there's definitely a lot of that. I think it's something that comes with experience, having tried it before, having been in that same part of the design process before where you're confused, you're frustrated, you don't know if it will work out. And then having seen before, oh, it did work out. If I just do my work, if I just follow sort of my process and use my methods, I will get out on the other end and produce something well. And I think that is what I lean on a lot is sort of those past experience of having felt this way before, but also having made it through them. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I still think I'll always have days where I'll be like, oh, I'm, 
I'm a shit designer. I should, <laughs> I should go back to selling toys. <laughs> <laughs> what toys were you selling? I, well, I work for the the largest retail store of toys in Denmark, so all sorts of toys, oh. um, baby toys, um, playstations, all of it. <laughs> oh, that that sounds really fun. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> what what sort of advice would present you have for younger you as you struggled with confidence and imposter syndrome? I think what I'm realizing as I've done this more and also as I'm feeling more comfortable in it is that honestly talking to people about it or as I'm just saying I've I've done this for for a little bit now at least and I I still have it and I think if I'd I've been okay when I just started out with talking to more senior folks and and have heard their perspectives on it or so I do really think I do really believe in the power of of saying things out loud for them to lose their sort of the danger about them or what we're scared about with them or what we're worrying about telling someone helps a lot. And so I know you, you are also uh, part of the community and I know that you have um, the founder of ADP list on here a while back. And I've, I've really, I love having a lot of, I'm a mentor at the, at ADP list. And a lot of what I have sessions about is this element of younger designers just saying it out loud, talking about, I don't feel, I feel like I'm not good, or I feel like I don't know all the answers or whatever that is. And, and honestly, just talking, it seems to me at least that that's helpful to them. And I know that it's helpful for me and has been helpful to me. So for me, I wish that I had just been more honest about how I felt, which sometimes can be a little daunting, especially in a business context. And I don't recommend it doing to everyone in your organization. Find those people that you feel comfortable around other designers who are typically very emotionally intelligent people who are nice. You're a design manager, maybe. Uh, and just dare, dare say it out loud, say that I... I'm confused or I'm frustrated today and just be honest and vulnerable about how you feel. I, I think I would have, I wish that I did that sooner. Yeah. And uh, I've heard, I was just listening to another podcast and, and by saying something, some of these things out loud, also by shining a light, it takes away its power. Exactly. I mean, if you were to say, Hey, I don't, you mean, if you were to tell me and you say out loud, I, I don't know if I'm a good designer. I don't know if I'm sure of myself when you consider myself a real designer. I'm like, dude, you're a senior staff designer at the Volkswagen Group, Innovation Group. You're a real designer. <laughs> Get <Yeah>. over it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it sounds exactly. silly when you say it out loud, right? Yeah. So I, I think it's it's worth, you know, I, I have a similar story where I always sometimes you know it's it's you can't help but compare yourself and and you know some 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 of my peers have had much more successful companies and i might confide in a friend of like hey you know it's i don't know if i'm all that great a ceo and you know things are going well and it's like what are you talking you look at all these clients look at how many people you employ look at the work that you've done and the clients that you have it's like okay well right when you put it that way this sounds kind of silly that <laughs> yeah exactly no totally and it's always just good to for everything in life to be careful of just comparing you to like what someone else's surface is because obviously they have stuff they were struggling with as well and um, absolutely yeah 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 social is horrible for that because it's 
I don't know. It, it's like people just put only the 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 good news and and the inspiring news, but they don't. Nobody ever shares their struggles on on social. So it looks like everything is always hunky dory. Exactly, and maybe even coming back to that, your original questions around designing for meaningfulness. I think that is some some of the things we need to think about as designers. So uh, before just thinking, hey, let's add a social component to it, to this. It, it, for instance, if we were to, you said that you like doing exercises or, or working out before just adding like this huge social component to a concept for that, we have to think about what kind of stress does that add to it? Does it really take some of the joy of going on that run out if you have to like perform it when it was really just all about going out for a run, just being totally in the moment of it. And so I, I think those are some of the things that we as designers have to think about and where we have to sometimes change some of the metrics we have for what good UX looks like, that it's not just measuring the immediate, did this feel good? Uh, Were you happy? Was this a good experience? But start trying to think about like, oh, but what are some of these long-term ramifications of all of a sudden turning my run into something that I'm performing for my friends to see? Uh, And I think those are some of the things that are really cool for design to think about and think that we have some skills that we bring to the table where we're the ones who need to be thinking about that stuff. Yeah. And I, I really enjoy reading and consuming some of the research done around the impact of design, you know, for example, relating to your story of designing, you know, this filming of sharing of uh, social sharing of exercise, the social sharing like, like Instagram and the, the, the like button and the number of likes people have, you know, there's some, uh, I was reading it, some work around, like maybe how teenagers, you know, their brains are, well, we as humans have not been evolved. We're, we're a small community society, right? So like, we've not been really evolved to handle this kind of like mass, either acceptance or rejection of a post that we've created where maybe the whole world made me may comment negatively and how that could affect our emotions, especially teenagers when they're still in their formative years, their egos are, are fragile and, and, you know, we've not had, you know, the our, our adult <laughs> sensibilities have, have not kind of formed yet. And definitely you let's talk about ADP list a bit and mentorship. Yeah. How does uh, mentorship fit into your life? How, how often are you doing it? And uh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I've been mentoring, not just through ADPLS, but different organizations for, for a few years now. And it's something that I don't necessarily feel like I have time for, but it's something that I really enjoy a lot. So I try to carve out some time and I, I do spend maybe just two or three hours on it each week. So I don't have a lot of time at my hands for it, but I really to enjoy it. I mean, first of all, it's I just love geeking out about designing and, and discussing and talking about design. And then I, I, I really like this idea of just talking to younger designers, especially or people who are not who might have been doing something for a while, but now transitioning into design and all of those uh, inner thoughts that come along with that. I I really enjoy being like a sounding board to people on on 
what their thoughts on this is. And, and even sometimes for me then to articulate my experiences based on their questions, help me understand my own stuff in a new light. And I, I just really enjoyed that. And I, when I was studying, I worked as a student counselor as like a part-time gig alongside my studies and sort of a similar type of helping others sort of make sense of their own mess or their own mental mess. And I, I, I think I approach mentoring a little bit like that, helping people sort of make sense of it, but then also bringing that perspective of, for example, I just had a mentoring session earlier this week where we just talked over like, what does a typical design interview process looks like? It looked like, what are the steps? How do you think about it? How do you approach it? Not just as like you trying to be picked, but also you trying to understand this is the right fit for me. So yeah, so I, I really, I really just enjoy those conversations and, Obviously, it feels good to help others, but I also really do feel that I'm gaining a lot of, of new perspectives from it and hearing other people's stories about how, why are they even interested in going into design? How, they, how have they arrived here? Yeah, that's exactly why I do this podcast. So <laughs> it's a oh. <laughs> very similar reason, but, um, but I also enjoy talking to, to young designers too. I think from, from my perspective, I think, you know, as you get older, I think, you, you know, maybe you're become a little more cynical, a little more jaded, but you know, people new to design or young designers, everything is still new. Everything is still fresh. Everything is ideal. And uh, it's, it's, it's nice to kind of have that that innocent mindset, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was just, I had a conversation with one, I, it was a few weeks ago where they, they were taught, they, they had done, I think it was a business degree and they had just like, not liked it at all. And then they had found design and they were like, I just want to do this all day. I never get tired of this. And they were just so excited. And I was like, oh, that's yes. Yes. I'm excited too. Yeah. Now. Yeah. That's, that's like that's the energy you want to get back. <laughs> yes, exactly. Not just surviving one meeting at a time. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, and uh, to, to your point, just mentoring, there's a lot of knowledge that we take for granted that, that new designers don't know. And so you have a lot to share and, and sometimes you, you don't really think that what you know is all that valuable, but when you do say something, it's like, oh, they, they found it very useful. And for you or me, it might be like, oh, yeah, I mean, oh, no. I've been doing this. Yeah, it's common knowledge or I've been doing it for a while. So, yes, I, I think we both really enjoy doing uh, mentorship. Uh, and that's, that's how we met on, on ADP List. So, yes. yeah, it's, it's a great platform. I, I always try to uh, bring attention to it. If you're a new designer and you're looking for mentorship, there's many platforms and, and one of them is is ADP list. So highly recommend. Yes, definitely. As we wrap up here, how can someone get a hold of you? I think either connecting with me on LinkedIn or people or on ADP list, I'm on there. People are more than welcome to reach out, set up a, a call or send me a message uh, or send me an email. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm always happy to talk to people and to hear their stories and share my experiences. I always uh, like to ask before we wrap up, what to you, what is, what is good design? To me, good design um, is when things just work. And, and by that, I mean, when things almost disappear, when you get to do something but without necessarily realizing that you're doing it with something. So let's say that we've just had this Zoom call uh, or 
talk together on this podcast, we don't necessarily realize all the technology that goes behind it. I think for me, that's, I really like that part of design when it helps me do stuff I couldn't do without, but where it just allows me to live my life without me really realizing it. I don't know if that, that definition to me applies to all types of design, but at least when it comes to this type of design that we typically do as UX designers and being very intentional about when is it that we uh, let people notice the design artifact and when is it that it just disappears and it just allows them to live their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the, the definition of when, when it sort of just works and design gets out of the way, right. It helps you enable you to accomplish your task, but, but really it's, it's, it's almost invisible. Good design. Yes. It's just a tool and it sounds really easy. I think what we have to remember is that achieving that is extremely difficult. Both the, the design of that is takes a lot of thoughtfulness and a lot of design work and then technologically to do that. It's very difficult to to so it's it doesn't sound as innovative to just not really see it, but it is it's a lot of and you can see it with like new types of products that come out where a lot of the ones that are like really getting acclaim are the ones that really nail this. I think one good example for me is like the whole Sonas and their speakers. It's just so easy. It allows me to listen to your music. I don't even have to think about it. But that took a lot of craftsmanship to sort of nail that. I I, I always, sometimes I apply my martial arts analogies and, and you know, I, I used to do martial arts and some, some people would comment that, oh, wow, it looks really hard, but you make it look so easy. You know, it's like, and yes, that takes years of practice to, to look, make it look easy and effortless. And I think that applies to, to good design as well. When, when good design it is, it's, it's sometimes you can call it expensive because yeah, it takes a lot of craftsmanship and, and years of experience to make it look like design is very intuitive, gets out of the way and usable. Yeah. Yeah. Intuitive design isn't like an ingredient. It's the result of like really hard work. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Great. Any design resource, favorite design books or resources that you point to? I've really enjoyed reading um, work by Erica Hall, the co-founder and designer at Mule Design. Uh, she has this one analogy of like, um, yes, donuts taste really well, but if you keep eating them, they aren't necessarily healthy for you in the long run. And I think that whole analogy works so well with how I think about uh, the ethics of design. Uh, so so reading things from her is always uh, so thoughtful. Uh, I've also really enjoyed uh, the best interfaces, no interface, and this whole idea of of trying to not over digitize or not over complicate or not over uh, make too many interactions, but just really make it make it work. It's not about interacting. It's just about getting from A to B and make that as easy as possible. Right. Uh, so I think those are some of the like the the books that I always pull out. And be like this is this is the Bible for me when it comes to good interaction design. Oh, I, I'll I'll leave those in the show notes. Especially now, I'm really interested as well in the uh, yeah the best interfaces. No interface sounds like a book uh, that would appeal to me. So thank you yes. for that. Of course. <laughs> well, Morin, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate uh, you being gracious with your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. 
If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.